Hello, welcome to episode 125 of Fear of a Black Planet. I'm really tired. For some reason, the last couple of days, it's been really difficult to sleep. It's cooled down a little bit in London, but I think it's still a little bit... It could just be in my head, I can't work it out, but it feels to me like it's still a bit close, as we say in Scotland. So I think that, and I think that's my, that's probably my number one hated kind of weather, close. You know, where that, that feeling before there's going to be rain and the, the air is just thick and hot. Uh, it doesn't take much for me to feel like that, granted, but I, I do think it's a bit clammy here in London. Um, so I've not been sleeping particularly well and so... I'm not sure how sprightly I'm going to be on this podcast today. I tried to... So my friend Andy was down last week from Edinburgh and we did a lot of walking and talking. I hadn't seen him for ages and we were talking about... Because he's just finished writing a book and uh, we're talking about writing routines and, you know, generally process stuff, how to be how to structure your day when you're doing that kind of work, which is stuff I talk about on this podcast all the time, actually, and it's one of the things I'm most interested in. Like, I'm really fascinated by other people's creative processes, and I'm really fascinated by how other people live artistic lives, possibly because there's no template for it, and it's an unteachable thing. So you can, you can only really learn by imitation and then judging what works for you. Which is kind of how I like to learn anyway. Um, I'm an actor. And I realise this. Like I'm a, I'm a thespo really. When you get down to it. And um, I think that that's. If the, if the actor has one skill really. It's. it's and, and it has any evolutionary heritage it's the learning through imitation muscle in the brain so anyway we're talking about that and because of it because I, that's the way my head is I'm quite interested in other people's routines and I'm always looking for a, a kind of I'm always looking for a new model to sustain me you know so we were talking about that and I always watch these documentaries about artists I'm really fascinated about daily routines and how people structure their mornings, what little rituals they have in order to, how you know, do they write for two hours, do they write 500 words a day or 3,000 words or 20,000 words a day? Um, because because it's such an open thing and, and there's an anxiety that comes with that, I think I'm, I'm sort of obsessed with that question about other people's processes. But anyway, we were talking about it and he was saying that because you work three days a week, uh, it's probably good to take this, the Sunday off and then work the other three days as proper routine days. So I'm really resistant to that because I feel that every time I'm in work and I'm hating like my time being sucked away, I really, you know, so I'm always thinking, what, you know, why did I waste that? Why did I just spend that hour on YouTube when I could have been working? You know, I, I, I didn't know how... I didn't know how good I had it last Wednesday, you know. So, 
But I think he's right, though. I think that um, some, he's not the first person to say that to me, and I think that it's really difficult for me because I'm not. I am. I, I am just as lazy as any the next person, if not more. But um, coupled with that laziness is also a kind of anxiety that I'm not doing enough. So there's a restlessness and a drive that I have coupled with a kind of little rebellious part of me that just wants to sit and watch YouTube videos all day. So I'm always struggling with that and I always try to err on the side of productivity and push through it uh, just because of, of a kind of paranoia. But actually that's not entirely healthy necessarily. It can It can be helpful to a point but it's not what you would call genuine inspiration anyway and actually it, it, it can be a good idea to say well rather than have four days of working half-assed and having that distraction of maybe I should just watch YouTube videos even if I'm resisting it it's still a lot of energy sucked out of you um, so I kind of experimented with that yesterday and did fuck all went for a walk with my sister and her fiancé and had a fry up um, and really did nothing else, watched a lot of YouTube. I have to be honest, I've got a really guilty pleasure in watching reaction videos, comedy reaction videos. It's really hilarious. Like what? Watching other people laugh at comedians that you find funny is a like it isn't it isn't a direct surrogate for community and uh, you know being there and laughing with someone in real time, but it's pretty close if you're if you're lacking that in any way in your life. I highly recommend. It's a it's a strange form of connection laughing alongside someone and and actually. YouTube reaction videos are pretty good, although I know it's like a really silly, culturally vapid thing to do, probably. But for some reason, I, I must have watched hours of reaction videos yesterday. Uh, and then I went for another walk in the evening. I couldn't, I couldn't even read. I did a little bit of writing, kind of brain dump writing, not anything not like proper proper writing writing um did a bit of yoga uh, but that's about the most productive i got all day i wanted to do some reading but i was just my head fried i don't know why actually it could be that i've just i've got a hold back on the drink like i was saying last week <clears throat> like I, I'm not drinking excessively, but I'm drinking consistently, and maybe that just as you get older, that just takes it out of you. But I also think it's the sleep. I'm when I do sleep, I'm not particularly sleeping deeply. I don't think. Uh, so anyway, I went for a walk, and I walked up to Victoria Station last night, which is an interesting to place to be, by the way, after ten o'clock at night. And I walked around the food hall which is an even more interesting place to be at 10 o'clock at night, like in a McDonald's. I think last year I did a podcast where I talked about how I got locked out of my house. 
and I and basically I'd, I'd left my keys in and nobody was answering the phone so the upshot was I ended up having to occupy myself and keep warm and it was just as winter was coming along and I ended up in the McDonald's for a few hours that night and actually it was a, the one up at King's Cross just across from the station directly and it was a really fascinating place to be because it's very lively uh, even last night in Victoria it was you know Things are dying down by that point at Victoria Station, but it's at the same time it was reasonably busy. You you get a, you get the whole of humanity there. It's quite interesting. Like the it's a vapid, empty, horrible corporate environment which you don't you wouldn't seek out unless you got fuck all else to do, which is what I was doing last night. And you're too tired to really do anything other than that. I was just looking for a place where maybe I could sit down and and read but I just I couldn't do it so I ended up just listening to a podcast and wandering around Victoria Station and looking at magazines at Smith's and things like that I just this is the problem when I'm trying to 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 chill out I just end up doing like really you know I'm at a complete loss I have to be doing something like reading or something like that or, and it's not a virtue it's it's kind of agitated mind um I'm not very good at just doing nothing. It's definitely not a virtue because you you can't be you can't be creative and without being contemplative. So there's no point in just powering through tasks all day. It that might be good, but it, for most people. But if you're an artist, it isn't a good thing. You have to be. You have to get a skill at doing nothing. If that makes any sense, and to be skillful at doing nothing. It's part of the craft to be contemplative, to be to to allow your mind to get into a meditative state. And but I think part of it was I was just tired, and I didn't I didn't have the energy to go and seek out something more nourishing, like maybe go for a walk in the park or somewhere more green at that time of night, or go up to Soho and sit at Cafe Bohem and you know absorb the vibe or something like that, go and see some live music. I just didn't have the gumption about me last night to be able to do any of that. I was just looking for a place to. To, to burn off a bit of steam, blow off a bit of steam and, uh, you know, just get out of the house, really. Um, but yeah, McDonald's are, despite all the things that you wouldn't want to seek out in McDonald's, it's a fun, it, that's, a, that's a good place if you're a novelist, I think, or a writer in general. If you want to observe people and you want to get a good cross-section of people, McDonald's is a bloody good place to get it, and that's that's consistent. That's recently. It never used to be like that, but maybe it's just in London. I think it's just in London because people there's a t- people in will go to McDonald's and they've maybe cornered this market where they've got f- when they've got fuck all else to do and they're killing time. They're waiting for a train, or they're they're waiting for something. You know, they they've got time to kill. Uh, or they've just come back from the pub, so it's a kind of you get a you get a very very interesting, varied cross section of 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 people, and there's something really quite stimulating and and fulfilling about it. Actually, it was it was kind of nice because I get very very agitated. I was saying this to Andy. I get very my nervous system has really low fucking tolerance for crowds now in London, and it's really making me think if it's a really healthy thing to keep 
keep living in London because it's so crowded. It's so easy to feel like you're suffocating and that you're just being bustled around. You lose a certain sense of your agency when you're in that kind of crowd, and I think that's what makes it so agitating. But didn't get that vibe at all last night in in McDonald's. It was, I think it wasn't crowded enough. But I think it, even then, I think it's people. People are in a certain state of mind. Like everybody's kind of in the same boat. I think that's what it is. Everybody's kind of in the same mental state of like we're all here killing time, uh, and at least we're warm and we're not sitting out there. You know, I think that it's as kind of basic as that. It's, there's something safe about it. There's, there's a kind of unsaid mutual agreement that, you know, we're all in this together, you know, we're all just going to kind of keep to ourselves, not get in each other's way, you know, this works for everybody, let's just shut up and get on with our lives. Um, so it's a good place to be alone, but be sort of in parallel with humanity in some way. Uh, I just thought, I don't know, I don't know if I'm expressing it correctly, but it's an, it's an interesting balance because it's... Yeah, it's a good place to be alone. You can you can have your solitude in that kind of environment, but you can still have the stimulation and connection of being around people. And there is a there is a weird thing that everybody's on the same level, on the same frequency in a place like that. You know, it's it's the same kind of forces that will draw you to a place like that of kind of boredom, needing to kill time, maybe insomnia. You know, there's a there's, it's similar kinds of forces that everybody in there is going to be having at that moment in time. So it's 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 quite it's almost hilarious, really. Um, and also, like the good thing about these, I mean, the thing about chains is like with Starbucks as well. They're awful places. They're really kind of acultural. You know, there's no texture to the experience other than other humanity. Uh, but the good thing about them, those kind of places, Pret as well, no one gives a fuck. And sometimes if you go to these hipster coffee shops and it's like, you know, this lovely bohemian vibe, paintings on the wall, you know, wood panelling, nice, you know, rough oak tables, you know, all the texture of, of a creative environment. But there's this, what kills it is the kind of smarminess of the people that work there or the types of clientele that you get there where they all think that they're observers of people but they're not really observing they're they're uh, looking to get one up on you there's just a strange vibe and it, and actually it just makes me think that that's not in my head because when you go to a place like mcdonald's at one in the morning on a sunday night in victoria station or or in king's cross you don't get that vibe people are uh, actively avoiding that vibe because there's that sort of uh, we're all in the same boat here kind of thing. Whereas if you go to a hipster coffee shop, there's just this undercurrent of status and power below the professed bohemianism. Uh, so obviously the ideal combination would be the kind of solace slash community spirit of a McDonald's with the nice creative textured environment of a hipster coffee shop, but it doesn't work like that, sadly. And I think, but the, I think that says something quite a lot about the modern world, personally. That sums up the modern world, that uh, ironic difference between those two experiences. I'm not sure what that is exactly, but you know what I mean. 
something to do with the carpetization of bohemianism, that you get a much more authentic experience in a fucking corporate environment rather than the virtue signaling, supposedly creatively textured environment. It makes me think it's just like the virtue signaling and the fake morality of political correctness and, and all that sort of stuff. The very people who claim to be on the side of the oppressed and, and defending uh, compa compassion and all those virtues don't tend to exhibit those virtues in themselves, whereas in actual fact the very types of people that get uh, mischaracterized and slagged off and poo-pooed in the media tend to have much more community spirit and much more empathic day-to-day -day people skills. That's might be that I'm not sure if you can generalize that, but I'm not the only one to have said that, and that's definitely, definitely, definitely my personal experience. So anyway, I was listening to. So anyway, yes, basically the upshot of that story is, I'm it's it's remarkably difficult to try and take a day off in London. I think it's a big, big part of the difficulties, the London aspect. It's very difficult to tune down in London unless you just don't go out and then you go a little bit fucking stir-crazy. So you've got to go out and then, you know, you're stimulated. So it's very difficult to... Like, your nervous system is inflamed in some way and it's very difficult to, to kind of dial back that inflammation. Um, but yeah, I did. I didn't do fuck all. I can't think. I I didn't even read yesterday. Um, didn't even really listen to some music. Just fucking YouTube videos. <laughs> it's depressing. Um, I was supposed to. Yeah, I, I walked a lot. That's that's. That's that's good creative work. That's part of the craft. A daily walk, a good solid daily walk, is part of the artist's craft, without a doubt. Without a doubt. Um. So anyway, I was, but I did listen to that podcast actually. Yes. Yeah. So I was listening to a Jordan Peterson podcast, and I haven't listened to him for a long time because I'm actively avoiding it because it's kind of so much baggage that comes with him now that. Um, it's very difficult to just to take the ideas on face value, but anyway, I needed something to to wind myself or to kind of detach my brain from the environment as I was going for a walk. And his new podcast, I've only got halfway through it, but basically, he's talking about he's talking about the psychological origins of the political stuff that we're dealing with today and that we've always kind of dealt with, but are, you know things like security, identity, those kind of things. And he's at the basis of what he's talking about is the, the assertion that hierarchies are a natural phenomenon. They're they're not they're they're a natural part of having a human nervous system. Um, because at the base of being a human being and having that nervous system is anxiety, suffering, struggle, fear. Those are our natural defaults. Is his point, and he gives scientific reasons for it. I can't remember exactly everything, but basically, we're no different to rats. And if you look at rats in their most normal environment 
uh, fear is the default and calm any form of calm or happiness or or positivity is is learned uh, it, and that's contrary to the kind of blank slate types or the or just the almost even the common sense view of of human progress that in some way you know or like even the freudian interpretation the psychoanalytic interpretation that somewhere along the line we've learnt to be anxious we've learnt to negative patterns because of negative experiences but actually he says actually it makes complete sense that it would be more normal for us to be in a state of anxiety and terror by default and that the mitigating factors that allow us to, to, to not be in that state all the time are learned cultural experiences. And it, it, it does strike me as true that. It does strike me as true that. And uh, for the one thing, it helps you put suffering and, and, and anxiety, particularly in perspective, because he's quite fond of saying it's, it, it's not a mystery as to why someone is, is, is anxious it's a mystery as to why they're not more anxious given the reality of human fragility and our relationship to the environment and how dependent we are on contingent circumstances that can go very badly very quickly without us having any control over them. Uh, from death right down to everyday experiences. So there's that. But it also does make sense to me on the level of culture because his point there is that why we have such bitter disputes over over uh, ideologies and belief systems is because those belief systems are exactly those mitigating factors of basic primal anxiety that we we depend on belief systems because they're what give us security in the face of what is otherwise nasty brutish and short effectively um and that struck me as true as well because I think it tapped into something that I've been talk about all the time on this podcast, which is the role of art and culture in society and in human life. And, you know, Keats said, what has he said? Poetry emboldens the soul to accept mystery. That's effectively the point that Jordan Peterson's trying to make there, is that our belief systems, our arts, our culture, whatever you want to call all the stuff that fits into that sense of meaning in life, belief systems, the things that kind of create a sense of individuality and purpose and forward movement in life and take us out of just the state of Hobbesian misery, which is our default. All those things help us navigate that line. You know, he's a big. He's always talking about the line between chaos and order, and he gets a lot of shit about that because he said that he called his book an anti an antidote to chaos, and and has aligned chaos with the feminine principle. So therefore, 
the subtext of that is supposedly that chaos is negative, but not necessarily. I think that he was genuinely, his diagnosis, given his lectures and everything else, he says, we're living in a time where there's more proclivity towards chaos than there is towards order. And I think that's undeniable, really, if, you, if, you're, if you're confronting the post-counterculture of the 1960s head-on. I think it's very difficult to deny that we've gone, we've veered away from order towards more of the unknown, towards more inventiveness about social norms. And to, some, to, to, to the extent that that's not order, that's definitely a pivot towards more chaos. It's been a good thing, it was a necessary thing, because we were too far the other way. But it's not necessarily it, it, the antidote is is because it, there's a danger of it, of everything just getting questioned, of a kind of moral relativism coming in on the back of that revolution. So and that was the whole point of his book, I think, was that here's a set of rules that can mitigate complete and utter relativism and nihilism, which can come from too much of a pivot towards chaos away from order. Um, but it, but the, the, the main thing it got, I was thinking about this morning about this was art and culture and, and it made me think about the Beatles, which I've been talking about for the last few weeks and that f- first time I heard Strawberry Fields and John Peterson said elsewhere and I was, it could be Nietzsche, it's a very existentialist interpretation of music anyway, that music gives you a sense of order to chaos, but not too much, in the sense that it's not an imposed order, it's almost you get this sense of a, uh, a yeah, it, it, I think Satra actually, where it's the, the um, music... Music gives a sense of necessity within a contingent experience. So you you have a sense of, and Jordan Pearson said this, is that you've sort of got enough chaos going because you don't quite know where it is. There's a lot of unknown in, in the way the melody is going to go, say with a symphony. Um, but at the same time, there's a sense of inevitability because the melody seems to follow on from itself. There's If it jars, then it ceases to become a piece of music. So... With it, if if it follows a musical scale and there's some kind of musical grammar and sense to it, then you're not. It's just that perfect balance between the unknown and the no, and, and and the known or the contingency and necessity. And there's, it's a contingent experience because it's uh, you know it's finite and uh, we don't know quite where it's going to go but there's a sense of necessity because there's a sense of inevitability from one note to the other and that's the kind of mystery of of music and um to some extent you could say that all art does something like that maybe music is the most potent version of it because it's non-verbal and non-conceptual but to some extent all art plays with that line between contingency and necessity in a way that fits in with what Jordan Peterson's saying about belief systems. And I just, it, it got me, it started me down this line of thinking that maybe that's one of the reasons, because I'm a creative type, that 
music and art were the only thing that really worked and that and that there's something genuinely like physically soothing about being around in a beautiful building you know it's 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 a primal psychophysical tangible material change that goes through my nervous system when i'm confronted with something beautiful it's not just you know and i think this is this is what artists and creative people that's a distinctive feature of them you know it's not just that you have this like everyone else you know this beautiful thing it's interesting wow love it but it goes really deep i mean it's it's, it's like a it's like having an, a panic attack and then suddenly you take a pill and it, the panic attack goes away it's a psychophysical drug in a way um uh I suppose everybody must feel that to some extent, but I, my point is simply that I think if you're artistic in any way, rather than just being creative, my, the same old distinction I'm always making between creativity and being an artist, we're all creative, but not all of us are artists because we don't have all, all have a calling. I think that if you're an artist, that is your belief system. Whereas if you're more politically minded, Maybe your conservatism or your 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 uh, progressivism gives you that tonic, but I think if you're an artist, the thing which cools your nervous system down from that natural state of heightened anxiety and fear and survival, and sort of lizard brain, the thing that takes you out of that is beauty and the experience of beauty and the engagement in 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 beauty in some way. Um, that feeling of, I mean, that is what writing feels like, for instance. When you're actively in the act of writing, you feel that you're kind of within that melody, that there's a sense of inevitability and necessity about it because there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a momentum coming from the thing you want to express that gives you a sense of, the, of inevitability, even though it isn't inevitable. There's that sense and feeling of it because it's an, there's an urgency within you that's guiding you in some way and, and sort of bringing order to chaos. But at the same time, it's you're not never quite sure what's going to come next, how you're going to phrase that, that sense of urgency, how you're going to manifest it. You're never quite sure. You're always making a decision as you go, so you, the next note in the melody is always coming to you as a surprise to some extent, even though it's fitting in as a melody because it's within a scale. It's like, it's an interesting thing. Like being a, it's one thing to enjoy that and to get that existential balm from enjoying a symphony. It must be another thing completely to be playing in a symphony, you know. And uh, to some extent, you know what's coming next because you've learned the piece. But there's always variations and creativity within how you play it and, the, and and all that stuff that a musician does to make creative choices it must be even even more potent with art uh, jazz right or yeah it all fits in with me it just really triggered me into thinking on this line uh, maybe he goes into it in the rest of the podcast i'm only halfway through it but it's definitely there's definitely something in that because i'm just thinking about jackson pollock or coltrane it's, it's the same thing. It's that balance between chaos and order, between contingency and necessity. Like if you look at a Jackson Pollock, it's very easy 
and I think that there's something disingenuous, but it's very easy when people say, oh, it's just a myth. I don't believe people think that, actually. I just don't believe. I think it's just very easy for them to dismiss it and not have to engage. Oh, it's just a mess. It's not real art. But I think the part of the key and the secret to it is that it's that it's jazz music on the, on on canvas. It's it's fractal. It's it's a way of it. Yeah, fractal is the right way, right? So that there's there's a cert, there's a certain identifiable pattern, but but it isn't exactly necessarily the case that you could predict it. So it's identifiable pattern with some sense of inevitability about how the pattern emerges, but it, you could, you could, it isn't really inevitable because you couldn't predict exactly where it's going to go, and that, that's kind of a Jackson Pollock to me in some, and it's this, exactly the same sensation I get from listening to Coltrane, and um, obviously that's interesting from a personal point of view because that's what art can do for you as a human being. But it's also interesting that, not that it matters, because I'm with Roger Scruton in this, we don't need a scientific account of why we like art, we just do. It just is. But it's interesting to see that there's a kind of evolutionary or survivalist basis for having art, that maybe that's, it could be an epiphenomenal thing that's, part of being a human being but it, it there's there's definitely a lot to be said for the idea that it might have emerged from that evolutionary necessity to self-generate belief systems or self-generate cultural maps of the environment which which uh, are a antidote to just heightened fight or flight or lizard brain whatever you want to call it modes of being um and I suppose, like Jordan Pearson said, that the artist, you know, we it, it kind of walking that line between the hierarchy and creativity. So you you can't have too much of just can't, not everything can be spontaneous. You need some kind of hierarchy, or else it's complete and utter nihilistic chaos. But at the same time, you can't have too much order. And the and the and he's definitely made that point before that the. the there's a role for the artist there in that line between walking between chaos and order, inevitability and, and the unknown. The known and the unknown, which is exactly what Jim Morrison and the Doors said. There are things known and there are things unknown and in between is the Doors. It's the kind of thing that they got slagged off for and were called pretentious for, but actually it's it's very interesting, I think. I think it's it's exactly what I... I don't think that there was a self-aggrandizing comment at all. I think that they were talking about what they are striving to do as artists is to be conscious of that... what Conscious of that fact that that's what art does and to try and push on that fact in a conscious way, to be, to be conscious of what most artists wouldn't think consciously about. And that's probably what, the very foundation of what is... a the accusations of pretentiousness because they're doing it they were they were doing it self-consciously so yeah I, it got me thinking on that topic um, and I think that it's related to the doors thing actually that it articulate it helped me articulate something which I'd always felt 
about why I like art and why I, I'm, I'm in this business. Uh, wh- why I am an artist, why I want to live a life as an artist, why I think art is important for the human condition, but also for society, that you that it, 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 it nurtures the soul, and that's not just in a sense of well-being to become a good person, although it is that, but it's, it's more metaphysical or, or physical even than that. It, it's more that this is part of the process of creating, of taking us out of the nasty and brutish and short, that there's something about art and artists that take us, that are, they are part of a wider process of taking us out of that fight or flight mode. And it's why I detest propaganda, because propaganda is the use of something not ennobling like artistic means for exactly the opposite, to take us back into fight or flight. And this got me think. This makes me think about the media, you know. And I work in the digital media, and the whole thing. As my dad was saying this to me on the phone last night, there's the only reason, the only business model now for media outlets, even the big ones, is to get inside your head and to sway you towards a certain ideology or a product. There's nothing else. It's not about informing you anymore. It's it's about persuasion and, a, and and manipulation, actually. And that's exactly the opposite of what I'm talking about because that process of being within the melody that I was talking about in terms of being an artist and writing, or even when you're just enjoying that level of beauty, that it is being an antidote to the horror of human suffering, in a real physical way, in the way that Pearson describes it. I'm losing my thread here. Let me just wind back on this bit. Yes, the, 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 the being within the melody, let's just say, in that metaphorical sense, and in a real sense, actually, in a way, um, there's a sense of agency that comes with that. So that it's a it's the perfect balance between inevitable, determined forces that you're you you can feel the forces around you that are not within your control, and you can feel them as part of your sense of yourself. But you also feel intertwining with that a sense of agency, and it's that perfect balance, being within the melody, being in the pocket, as they say. Um, being in the zone those are experiences of where external forces and in sense of internal agency become fused it's a zen um, and so to the extent that art has it, it doesn't have a role again it goes back to Shelley it's not about having a polemical role or an ideological role or a function or a utilitarian role it's just that the upshot of, of, of the desire to make an experience beauty is that one's agency is finely tuned. And if you don't have a finely tuned sense of agency, i.e. a sense of, of a sense of the feeling that one's, one's will can, can relate to the world in a meaningful way, 
and not just as the victim of inevitable forces. Then you can be a good citizen if you have that. You know, it's um, the, the, it's a key idea to to social cohesion. It's it's metaphysical truth about human nature that's n- that's necessary for an understanding of any any kind of functional form of human progress and and human society and cohesion and community. Um, so, yeah, there we go. <laughs> Uh, I think I'm going to leave it there because I'm really tired and I'm just going to burn out if I don't and I've got some other work to do so sorry this isn't as long as it, it should be but um, yeah that's kind of where my head is at this week um, yeah I'll keep you posted about gigs uh, again I'll be talking about this bloody book review oh I, don't, I can't remember if I talked about it last week but there's a review on my website jamesblackfolk.com of the Rolling Thunder review Bob Dylan's 1975 tour the Martin Scorsese documentary on Netflix I've reviewed that on my blog so uh, you should check it out if you're interested thank you very much